This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 5th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Swatting is essentially a prank, calling cops to come to the aid of hostages in a place where there are no hostages. Sometimes it has deadly results. Who should bear the burden of bad or malicious tips to police when those police, in turn, kill innocent people? Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. He comments. A guy calls the police. Uh, the police are sufficiently alarmed by what this guy tells them over the phone that they send a SWAT team to a home and ultimately shoot and kill an innocent person. And in the news coverage that I've seen of this so far, it's as if the police are not responsible for this person's death. And it's, it's almost as if the police have no agency whatsoever when it comes to this death. The, the, the focus is on how do we properly punish this guy? Do, do we charge him with second-degree murder, uh, some lesser charge? Do we charge him with first-degree murder? It's like, no, this guy made a phone call. And police have several decisions that they, they ought to make based on that. Two things. First, it is absolutely the case that we send police officers the message that they have no agency or at least no responsibility uh, for their conduct in these situations because they are almost never held accountable in any meaningful way. And second, uh, it, it's, it raises an interesting question, namely, when you engage in this conduct, this is called swatting. Uh, this is where you, you make a false report of a situation, uh, in this case, a hostage situation that would uh, elicit a, a response involving a SWAT team from the local police department, which is exactly what happened in this case. So um, when you have a situation where there's swatting like this, is that more akin to uh, sending, let's say, a, a, a cat or a dog to somebody's front door as a prank, or is it more akin to sending a Bengal tiger to their door, where if they open the door, they are in, immediately in danger, their life is in danger. And the, the fact of the matter is these days, when confronting the average SWAT team in America, it appears that your life is in extreme danger, regardless of whether you're armed, regardless of whether you're resisting, and regardless of whether you comply with the commands of the police officers, you are at extreme risk of being shot simply because you are on the wrong end of a bunch of guns held in the hands of, uh, in many cases, very poorly trained uh, tactical officers. Has there been, in this particular case, has there been any discussion about the role of police making use of tips? Because I know, at least in drug, a lot of drug cases, people get killed by police based on uh, tips that are not given with uh, that are not honest, that are not uh, given without some sort of ulterior motive? Well, that's absolutely right. This is absolutely well known within uh, law enforcement. Uh, swatting is not new. Uh, it's not some mysterious uh, practice that, that uh, police wouldn't hear about. They absolutely know about it. And part of appropriate training for anyone on a SWAT team should be the understanding that when you come to a situation like this, it might or might not be uh, what it seems to be. And the person who comes out of that house, um, even if this had been a hostage situation, that could have been a hostage who walked out the front door for all they knew. Um, and they didn't know that it was a hostage situation. They simply had a report that it was. So for a SWAT team to show up uh, at a house like this and simply shoot the first person who comes out of the front door and makes what they described as a gesture towards their waistband um, is an extraordinarily irresponsible uh, act. Uh, and uh, again, it is unfortunately conduct that we're seeing um, happen much more often than it should in large measure because there are never any consequences. Well, I should say 
there are almost never any consequences. Police in these situations are not criminally prosecuted uh, by and large. Um, they are not held accountable within the department and it is almost impossible to sue them civilly. So the takeaway if you're a police officer in this situation is you did nothing wrong and if you did, the, the, the system would do something to you. But since the system doesn't do anything to you, you must not have done anything wrong. It's a, it's, I, think, I think for normal people who are not uh, in this world of police, it, se- it should seem unconscionable that there are a group of people who, upon shooting and killing an innocent person, simply believe that they've done nothing wrong. I can't imagine that, that there aren't individual police officers who uh, don't feel like this was, you know, I feel terrible about this. This was an awful thing that happened. Maybe I shouldn't be a cop. Uh, I'm sure that happens from time to time, but there is a very strong culture um, of self-justification within law enforcement. There's the sense that – and you'll hear this repeatedly if you have this conversation with police officers. If you haven't been in this situation, then you don't know. Um, You are not uh, permitted to judge me or my actions until you have stood in my shoes and been in the situation. Um, I'm not discounting that entirely because certainly to be in a potentially life-threatening situation uh, where you have to make decisions. Um, you know, on a very – in a fraction of a second is a difficult and stressful situation. But here's the thing. That doesn't give you a license to simply shoot whoever walks out the front door of a house um, and, and, you know, uh, fails to comply with your sometimes very confusing uh, commands. But that's the standard that we've created that essentially um, – it's sometimes referred to as the scared cop rule that essentially if a police officer uh, has a, a non-frivolous concern for their own safety or the safety of another officer, then they can shoot. That's a bad standard. It's not the standard in other countries. Uh, in most European countries, police are not permitted to shoot until uh, unless absolutely necessary and they're certain that it's necessary. So we need to raise the standard. We also need to send a message to police officers that um, when you when you find yourself in a situation like this, we are going to hold you to a higher standard, meaning in theory, you have been trained. You have been trained as a police officer and if you're serving on a SWAT team, you should have received tactical training and you are not the average citizen and you should be able to exercise better judgment. And we expect you to accept the risk that comes with delaying uh, a decision to shoot until you are absolutely certain. Might that increase the risk to your safety? Yes, it might. But you know what? You're a first responder. You're an emergency worker, just like a fire uh, firefighter. We expect that firefighter to go into a burning building. We expect you to hesitate until you're sure so that you don't take an innocent life like they did with, uh, in the case of uh, Andrew Fitch, the 28-year-old father of two who was shot outside his home uh, by the police officers in the swatting incident. Tell me about the case in New Mexico that's, uh, that's somewhat similar here. So there's a case uh, from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals last week where the Tenth Circuit uh, found that a police officer should not be liable under the following circumstances. Um, the uh, New Mexico State Police stopped a minivan driven by a woman named uh, Oriana Farrell uh, that was with her and her five kids were in the minivan, pulled over for speeding. Uh, she uh, refused to sign the piece of, you know, the, the, the citation that says you'll either pay it or show up in court. So she refused to sign that. The police officer got impatient. She began to drive away. So he pursued her, stopped her again. This time he called for backup. As he was discussing with her and one of her kids was jumping out of the van and was, it was a pretty hectic situation, 
two other New Mexico state police officers showed up. One of them took out his baton and caved in uh, the, the rear passenger window of the minivan. This terrified the, the woman, Oriana Farrell. She began to drive off again. And one of the officers drew his pistol and fired three shots at a minivan full of children as it was driving down the highway. And as I said just last week, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the mother who sued that police officer could not recover any damages. In other words, in effect, he did nothing wrong. That is an astonishing result in that case. And the, what we should be talking about is why on earth wasn't this police officer tried for uh, at least attempt, uh, aggravated assault, if not attempted murder? So, I mean, think about it this way. Uh, if you got an offender bender and you got out to exchange information with the other driver and the person, you know, was being a little bit squirrely and then refused to provide their insurance information, you said, no, I really need it. They go back and get in their car and start to drive off, and you happen to be carrying a, a pistol. You've got a concealed carry permit. You're carrying your pistol, and you pull out your pistol, and you th you shoot at that that car as it's driving away. You would absolutely be prosecuted for that because that is attempted murder. The only question in this case is: Does the fact that this man happened to be wearing a badge mean that he is absolved of the same responsibility that the rest of us would have? The answer should be no. In fact, he should be held to a higher standard. In reality, the answer is almost always yes, and in fact, police are held to a much lower standard than citizens would be in the same situation. So you've got a police officer who is shooting at a, at a minivan full of children as it's driving away, not presenting a threat to anybody, just trying to drive away from the police. If you did that as a private citizen to another driver who is trying to leave the scene of a fender bender, you would absolutely be prosecuted and you would absolutely go to jail. If you do it as a police officer, you get a free pass. That is unconscionable. What rules in police departments or at the state level govern the discharge of firearms by police? You, you know, when, when, a, when a police officer discharges a firearm, you would expect that there would be a significant, vigorous investigation of, of whether or not that was necessary, what the results were. I mean, in a, if you're a doctor and you're operating on somebody and that person dies, there is a significant process, even though it is clear that you are attempting to save that person's life. That's exactly right. You would expect that uh, and you'd be disappointed. There are some departments that take the discharge of, of weapons very seriously, but most do not. And there's no national reporting requirement. In fact, it turns out to be extraordinarily difficult to just figure out uh, how many times uh, did police officers discharge their weapons at citizens in the last year. Um, there's no comprehensive statistics on that. You can only try to essentially reconstruct it from news accounts and occasionally from reporting within individual departments. And no one knows for sure. It's thousands. Uh, and over a thousand people were killed by police last year. But we only know that because different news organizations have essentially tried to piece it together. As I said, there's no comprehensive national reporting requirement. Um, and of all the, the it, and it's amazing because they, you know, the, the, there are so many different pieces of data that are collected about our criminal justice system. And the one that law enforcement seems to be among about the least interested in uh, is how many times uh, police shoot at citizens and under what circumstances. So that's exactly right. That's something they need to be much more concerned about. They need to track it. They need to uh, take it very seriously and figure out exactly what happened every time a police officer uh, uses lethal force uh, with a citizen. That doesn't happen consistently. It needs to. Uh, and unfortunately, I think one of the things that we would learn is that police um, uh, use lethal force much more often than they're supposed to and much more often uh, than, than most of us would be comfortable with precisely because what we told them is, look, if a reasonable officer in your shoes would have been afraid for their safety, then you can use lethal force. That is not a good standard. 
Now, you have uh, made the the point uh, several times in podcasts and will make this point several times in future podcasts, uh, which is that we need to change the expectations of police departments when it comes to the liability associated with uh, discharging firearms, with uh, mistreating uh, regular folks, uh, and, and again, lay that out. Well, so the way it works right now is that the Supreme Court has invented out of whole cloth uh, a legal fiction called qualified immunity uh, that uh, effectively amends federal law, which currently says that uh, any state actor who uh, violates a person's rights will be liable to that person. And instead, what the Supreme Court says is that only if the right is clearly established will the state actor, police officer, or whomever uh, be liable. Um, trying to figure out what is a clearly established right uh, is a very convoluted and government favoring uh, legal process that usually results in the answer being no. It wasn't clearly established because there's no case directly on point and uh, has the effect of just letting uh, police uh, off the hook when they engage in the kind of conduct that we've been discussing today. So that's the first thing that has to happen is we have to get rid of qualified immunity. Um, that's going to be challenging, but there's certainly a very strong argument to be made here because, again, the Supreme Court simply invented qualified immunity out of whole cloth. It has no originalist uh, credibility whatsoever, and it's pure policymaking on the part of the Supreme Court and not good policymaking either. The next thing that has to happen is that we've got to stop uh, indemnifying police officers and police departments that violate people's rights. There's a Law Review article from a few years ago that documented that 99.98 percent of all dollars that are paid out for police misconduct. Uh, are paid out by the department, that is by us, the taxpayers. So neither the police officer nor the department really feels the financial sting of their own misconduct and we need to change that as well. What we need to do in effect is require individual police officers to purchase their own liability insurance just like other professionals are required to do, doctors, lawyers and so forth, so that when they uh, violate somebody's rights and are held liable for doing so, uh, that cost comes out of their pocket and not taxpayers. And that would have the virtuous effect of tying the amount of an officer's you know, liability premiums to their own uh, conduct and propensity for misconduct. Uh, and some of the worst apples would eventually be driven out of policing altogether because they would effectively become uninsurable. That is precisely what we want to have happen. Insurance companies are extremely good at identifying risk. That's their whole business model. They're very good at it. And so we have a very, very powerful mechanism for identifying risk in the police setting that we are not using, namely uh, liability insurance companies charging premiums directly to the individual officers and making them pay for that out of their own pockets. Now, we might give them a raise so that they can you know, afford the average cost of liability insurance, but anything that's higher than average, in other words, because you rack up a lot of liability claims uh, because of your misconduct, that should be coming out of your pocket. We don't do that. Uh, we should do that. And that would align the incentives exactly the way we want them to be. And it is a huge miss missed opportunity that we do not require police officers to uh, internalize the costs of their own misconduct. And officers who are in particular fields might ought to be paid more for uh, in taking on that additional risk uh, to themselves and th their liability insurance may be more expensive because of that as well. Yeah, I think that would be fine. I mean, if there are some officers that serve, you know, for example, on tactical teams where the, the odds of, uh, of, of, you know, being sued are higher, I have no problem with the idea that they might receive more money in salary to represent the higher insurance costs. But it is also important to make sure that 
individual officers feel the financial sting of their own misconduct by being required to pay for any increase in premiums out of their own salary. That should not. Uh, in other words, police officers who have a higher than average insurance premium for the job that they do should not have that difference made up by their own department, which is to say the taxpayers. Instead, that should come out of their own pocket because that higher premium represents the insurance company's estimation that they are a greater risk factor precisely because of their history of misconduct. Why on earth should you and I pay for that as opposed to the officer whose history of misconduct resulted in the higher premiums? Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 